My name is Erin Kenny, and I'm a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I'm going to talk to you about what it is, what the signs and symptoms that you should look out for to indicate that you have an overgrowth, as well as the discrepancies in testing. And then we will jump into some evidence-based recommendations for treating it, but most importantly, making sure that it doesn't come back. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is pretty much what it sounds like. It is the overcolonization of specific bacteria, usually coming from the colon, up into the small intestine where they don't belong. Now, although the prevalence of SIBO in the general public is unknown, a meta-analysis has shown that the prevalence of SIBO is about 56% among patients who also have irritable bowel syndrome. Now, when all of this bacteria builds up, you're going to start to see symptoms such as gas and bloating, diarrhea and constipation, distension. Distension is, when I think of distension, it's that classic client who walks into my office and they say, I feel like I look pregnant throughout the course of a day when I'm eating. Abdominal pain, nausea, fatigue, feeling tired all the time, skin rashes. Research has also pointed a link between SIBO and fibromyalgia, as well as mental disorders like depression and anxiety, which is no surprise because we know that the gut and the brain are directly connected. In more extreme cases, the small intestine might not be able to absorb nutrients, In these clients, I will often see weight loss, sometimes anemia or iron deficiency. And then there's two symptoms that are typically associated with the different types of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So if you have the constipation, you're more likely going to be the methane type. And if you have loose bowel movements or mixed irritable bowel syndrome, so you've got constipation and diarrhea maybe alternating, then you more likely have the hydrogen type. And I'll explain this in more detail. SIBO is not a simple diagnosis, and as I just mentioned, there are different forms of SIBO. So when it comes to the testing, breath testing is typically what the doctor is going to recommend to you when you go into their office presenting with certain symptoms. It's the least invasive because the alternative to the breath test is taking a bowel culture, and what the physician will do is basically kind of poke into random parts of the small intestine to figure out if there's an overgrowth. And the small intestine is a large organ. So you're kind of poking into the dark and you don't know if you're going to be testing in a place where there could be bacteria. And sometimes the overgrowth can be patchy. And this is what makes the breath testing more appealing. So during the breath test, you drink a solution of either lactulose or glucose, and these are two different types of carbohydrates, and they will measure your breath multiple times over the course of three hours with the goal of detecting carbohydrate malabsorption. So you're breathing into a bag, and they're trying to see if when they feed you these carbohydrates, if the bacteria start to feed on them, if that produces a certain type of gas in your breath. 
Now there's some concern about the validity of each test based on recent literature. For instance, I've done some digging and noticed some studies showing that with the lactulose, giving a client lactulose, you have a higher likelihood of finding SIBO when you use this, but you also have a higher probability that it's going to be what's called a false positive, meaning the person comes back positive on the lab test, but they don't actually have SIBO. So there's some thought here that the lactulose test may be overreporting. And then we have the glucose test. And the research study that I found showed that you have a lesser chance of finding SIBO on glucose testing, but if you do, it's more likely to be a true positive. So you can see there, there is some discrepancy here about you know maybe which one would be better than the other, but overall, we do need a lot more consensus on interpretation and knowing maybe which test would be better for a certain type of patient, maybe based on their symptoms. And it's not as cut and dry as we would like it to be. I have worked with many clients who have come to me after getting their breath test done and they have been given mixed instructions on pretest guidelines. So this is just another area where we can see misdiagnosis. Some people will say, or some physicians will tell the client, okay, you, you can't take any probiotics for two weeks, one week out, no proton pump inhibitors or reflux medications, no laxatives, over-the-counter medications, supplements, herbs. And the day before, some people say you should only eat steamed white rice, boiled protein, and water. That means also no spices, oil, butter, sweeteners, coffee, no mouthwash, exposure to cigarettes. So you can see how compliance on these parameters might be difficult for the patient. And then also some physicians are saying, well, it doesn't really matter. You don't really have to, you know, stop taking your vitamin D or stop taking, you know, drinking that tea that you like. So this just kind of adds another layer of complexity and leaves room for misdiagnosis. So now that we know what SIBO is, how do we treat it? The trickiest part of having an overgrowth in the small intestine is making sure that it doesn't come back. I have clients who come to me after having been on and off antibiotics for so many years because their doctors are not treating the root cause of their SIBO. So what are some of the root causes of SIBO? The first one is achloridria, which is low stomach acid. So remember, I talked about in the first episode, the Gut Health 101, how stomach acid kills bacteria. And it's very important because without it, we're more susceptible to developing SIBO. So if you have chronic stress, if you are on proton pump inhibitors, or if you just have some sort of dysfunction in your parietal cells and that all, all of those things lead to low stomach acid, then you are more susceptible to SIBO. Motility disorders, and this is something I see very common in my practice, not always associated with SIBO, but this is a condition where the nerves and the muscles in the gastrointestinal tract are not working together correctly. And this causes difficulty in digestive processes, as you can imagine. You know, you have to think of it like, um, you know, a muscle, your digestive tract has muscle there. And if it's not moving at the right pace and the right speed, then you're going to suffer from things like constipation, maybe diarrhea, and overall that can lead to an overgrowth. 
An interesting point that I want to highlight here is the impact of stress on motility, Um, stress, including too much exercise, anxiety, and depression can affect the motility of the gut. It's really a bi-directional relationship. Now, the third reason is anatomical defects, and I don't see, this is not really the main reason why I see SIBO in my practice, um, but these defects could include things like a fistula, patients who have had a resection or strictures, those are, um, you know, potential reasons. And then immune deficiencies. So HIV infection, common variable immunodeficiency, possibly IgA deficiency are the most likely immunologic conditions associated with SIBO. So remember about 70% of our immune system is located in our gut. So important to keep that in mind. And this one, um, pancreatic exocrine deficiency, meaning a reduction in bile secretion, this is a detrimental impact that can be caused by anti-acid medication as well. Um, Other causes of poor bile secretion include genetic conditions like Gilbert syndrome or a combination of functional and genetic causes of poor liver metabolism. So functional and genetic causes of poor bile production could come from things like consuming too much alcohol, taking medications, or birth controls. And the reason for this is because these substances put a lot of functional stress on our liver, and that result is a greater requirement for detoxification. Detoxification is a process in the body that requires more nutrients from the diet to support the process. And so when you kind of think of the things that we talked about in the beginning episode is, you know, how SIBO can lead to malabsorption and malnutrition. So not only are we maybe restricting the diet, limiting the diet, but now we are having inflammation, which all of those things can put more of a burden on our liver because it's not given the proper tools to detox. Now, I have interpreted numerous stool tests over my career, which measure digestion and absorption. And with all of the stool tests that I've seen, it's pretty rare for people to have pancreatic enzyme deficiencies, which I think is kind of funny because so many people come to me asking if they should be taking digestive enzymes to improve digestion because the market is oversaturated with them. But in stool testing, the actual secretion of pancreatic enzymes by the pancreas can be measured by the amount of stool elastase. And it's also very rare to see stool elastase deficiency in a functional stool analysis. So why do so many people take enzymes and say that they work? And the answer to this is if somebody has SIBO, then pancreatic enzymes or taking digestive enzymes is likely to help them because when bacteria are found to be high in the early samples of the SIBO breath test, this can indicate a lower pH in the earlier parts of the intestine, small intestine, which can actually impair digestive function of these enzymes. And when we have a dysfunction in these enzymes, we see poor digestion of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, which again can lead to nutrient deficiencies. 
And the last one is food poisoning. And food poisoning is actually quite a big trigger for SIBO because it can trigger some kind of neuropathy or motility disturbance of the GI tract and is also a really um, big reason for irritable bowel syndrome. And we now have a test for this, um, an antibody test to see if somebody is carrying the antibodies for a type of food poisoning that could be causing symptoms. So when we think about neuropathy or motility disturbances, that's when things start to slow down and the bacteria start to accumulate. And I always like to talk to my patients about this, of thinking of it like a pond. So a pond is stagnant water, right? And when that water sits, bacteria overgrows as a result. So you, you want to think about that of your digestive tract. You want things to constantly be moving through to prevent this overgrowth. I'd say about 70 to 80% of clients who come to me with overgrowth, it's, this is typically the mechanism of action. Now, the use of antibiotics has been the cornerstone of therapy for treating SIBO, particularly the antibiotic rifaximin, and this has been shown to be the most successful um, in research at eradicating SIBO. And you might be thinking, listening to this, well, what the heck, Aaron? aren't antibiotics supposed to be bad for your gut? But rifaximin is not your typical antibiotic. Most of this drug is actually not absorbed in the GI tract, meaning that it is actually not going to make its way into your blood. The research has shown that you find a very small prevalence of this antibiotic in your blood. So it's really not able to work systemically. And that means that it's staying in the GI tract and it's doing its job in the small intestine and nowhere else. And that's why it is such a great treatment for SIBO. Some research supports the fact that it could actually increase beneficial bacteria, fight inflammation, and prevent bad bacteria from attaching to intestinal cells. And the typical dosage that is used to treat SIBO with rifaximin is way less than what's been safely studied. Specifically in terms of rifaximin, because there are other antibiotics that are used to treat this, we don't see any changes in the flora, the bacteria in the colon based on a stool test, but we don't know what it could be doing in the lower part of the small intestine or in the higher parts of the colon. So kind of a question mark there, potential to be altering it maybe in a negative way. We don't really know. Some potential consequences of using antibiotics to treat SIBO include development of resistant bacteria, adverse reactions, and then rise of certain opportunistic affections such as Clostridium difficile. Now, if you don't like the idea of taking an antibiotic, which I completely understand, there are botanicals, garlic, for example, that can have effects or anti-methanogen effects that they've been studied as an alternative to the antibiotic. But I think that the big challenge with the botanicals is not their lack of efficacy, it's lack of funding and ability to get good studies to prove their efficacy. The John Hopkins study is a really great one. I'll link it in the show notes, and it's helped to demonstrate that herbs have potential to not only be effective, but possibly even be more effective than antibiotics for treating SIBO. 
but we really need further prospective studies to validate these findings and explore additional alternative therapies in patients with refractory SIBO. I have clients who have been able to treat their SIBO with natural herbs and they're now feeling great. They're going on with their normal lives. They're eating a normal diet. And I always say that it can't hurt to try the natural medicine approach first before reaching for the antibiotic, but it's important to know that you, you know, you might not see the benefits from the herbal approach and you might have to go towards, um, you know, the Western medicine side. And, and that's hopefully a little bit, um, information there to maybe put you at ease in terms of having to, to fall back on the antibiotic. So once you've gotten rid of the overgrowth using either herbals or antibiotics, we really want to make sure that it doesn't come back. Oftentimes, patients are prescribed prokinetics, and the term prokinetic really just means to pr- promote movement. So the mechanism of action for these drugs and the way that they prevent SIBO from coming back is by addressing a motility issue. So if someone is having motility issues and that's what's causing their SIBO, then this is likely going to be something that they might be on long term or kind of rely on in order to keep that SIBO from coming back. Erythromycin is typically the one that's used, and it is an antibiotic, but at a very low dose, the one that's prescribed, it doesn't have antibiotic properties. My issue with this is that we are not addressing necessarily the root cause in a sense. You know, there's there's importance of, you know, the motility, but we want to figure out why the motility is not happening. Is it because of stress? Is it because of or diet? Is it due to food poisoning and having neuropathy in certain tissue? So again, really want to make sure that we're digging deeper here to find the root cause, but these prokinetics can be wonderful and very helpful for people who do have motility issues. There are also um, different herbs, medicinals that have prokinetic properties like ginger. There's also products on Amazon that you can get like IB Guard, uh, things that, that can also naturally promote motility in the gut. And some of my clients have found resolution or just symptom management through these drugs, which can be great. But I've also seen a lot of not great feedback from clients from using these that, you know, they didn't necessarily make things worse, but they didn't necessarily make things better. Now I want to segue into diet and how diet can play a role in being beneficial for treating SIBO. The data on using diet for SIBO are basically an extension of the data that we have from patients who have irritable bowel syndrome. The dominant theme in diet manipulations with these clients and with the clients I've seen in my practice include reducing fermentable products, and this typically means a low FODMAP or a no-starch diet, as well as avoiding sugar alcohols and other fermentable sweeteners like sucralose. And the reason behind this is because these carbs are poorly absorbed and digested, and therefore they can become food for the bacteria that are overgrown in the small intestine. So you can see how that would be beneficial in terms of not feeding and overgrowth. 
Now, the main problem with going on these types of diets is that while we're trying to kill an overgrowth, so let's say you are on an antibiotic, maybe you're on rifaximin, and you're trying to kill that overgrowth, that if you're now on a diet that is starving that bacteria, you're not kind of putting them out there for the drug to do its part. So think of it like a game of hide and seek. If the people that you're looking for are right out there in the open rather than hiding, it's obviously going to be a lot easier for the seeker, the antibiotic in this case, to find them and do their job. So the use of these types of diets has to be done in a, in a systematic way. So a way that I would utilize this diet in my practice is if a patient came to me and said, okay, I went on the low FODMAP diet, I saw a lot of improvement in my you know, gut health and my symptoms, then I would say, okay, let's get you tested, but I wouldn't have them remain on the low FODMAP diet. I'd have them start eating normally because then if we're then treating them for SIBO, we treat them for SIBO, not on a low FODMAP diet, but maybe after treatment, they remain on a modified low FODMAP diet to help with preventing reoccurrence. So the low FODMAP diet can be really great and it can be a tool, but it should only be followed for two to six weeks because it restricts nutrients that can negatively impact the gut microbiome. So if your symptoms improve while on the diet, it might be time to get tested, but it shouldn't be a diet that's used while you're treating SIBO. And it's something that you should work with a professional with if you're trying to reduce the amounts of these carbohydrates to kind of maintain while you're in remission. So does the low FODMAP diet reduce the reoccurrence of SIBO after it's been successfully treated? I get this question a lot. And the simple question is that this has not been answered. So big question mark next to that. Um, When I work with clients, we find something that's sustainable for them. So, you know, if you're eating a lot of these FODMAP foods on a daily basis, we talk about what would be manageable and reasonable while keeping your symptoms at bay and hopefully preventing that overgrowth. Now, what about probiotics? Probiotics have, for great reason, become very popular for digestive issues because they have been shown to decrease inflammation in the gut. They've been shown to strengthen our immune system and just overall create more balance and better health. So what about in the case of SIBO? I looked at a meta-analysis and systematic review of the current evidence to assess the efficacy of probiotics in preventing or treating SIBO, and what they found was that the present findings that probiotic supplementation could effectively decontaminate SIBO, so it could effectively decontaminate SIBO, probiotics could decrease H2 concentration, relieve abdominal pain, but were actually ineffective in preventing SIBO. So bottom line here when it comes to probiotics and SIBO is that we don't really know, and I wouldn't be hesitant to say that you could try a probiotic. I would start with not just your everyday probiotic because your everyday probiotics that you're going to find on the shelves are going to contain lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And these two strains are you know, more likely to, to maybe make the situation worse. So you've got an overgrowth and you're feeding these bacteria in there and that might feed the fire and exacerbate your symptoms. Maybe going for something like a soil-based probiotic or a spore-forming probiotic 
These ones are a little bit more robust and they have different strains in them, which might be more effective in terms of a patient who has SIBO. So inconclusive on, you know, the research in terms of which kind should you take, should you take one in general, but the best way to know is to implement it, to take the probiotic, give it a few days. And I say a few days because you might initially not have a great reaction to a probiotic, but then after a few days, you might even out and find that it's benefiting you. But sometimes we have to feel worse before we feel better. So I work with my patients to do this. Sometimes we have to try one or two different brands or strains before we find the right supplement for them, but it really, it it is individualized and that's just the bottom line. So my first big takeaway for you on today's episode is to not let Google diagnose or treat your digestive symptoms. There are so many things online out there that are saying you can restrict your diet, you can take this supplement, you can do this, you can treat your SIBO naturally, and none of this is backed by scientific evidence. So work with a professional to get a proper diagnosis and don't drive yourself crazy like Googling your symptoms and do I have SIBO because I guarantee you will find a diagnosis and you will convince yourself that you have it online. Number two is to make sure that you're working with a really good team. This is essential because there's nothing worse than having digestive issues and you feel so alone and isolated, especially if you're working with a Western medicine doctor who you're maybe seeing once every few months and they are getting maybe 15 minutes of your time or maybe not even at all. Maybe they're just looking at a number based on a test result and the symptom rely the symptom relay from you to your clinician or your dietitian or your practitioner is really important because that's the feedback of is what you're doing working. And lastly is to treat the root cause. If you have SIBO, if you have any digestive issues, but you're not addressing how you actually got to where you are, you're only going to be treating symptoms and you're not going to find long-term resolution. With that being said, if you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your health, especially your digestive health, you can visit nutritionrewired.com. I see clients both virtually and in person at my office in Boston, but only virtually right now. If you are looking for a great resource to improve your gut health, you can purchase my gut healing book, Rewire Your Gut, which includes recipes, a sample meal plan, pantry essentials, as well as tips to improve your digestion. So thanks for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health. (laughs) 